Hello and welcome to another Fish on Friday here on Facebook. With my bottle of Erdinger alcohol-free beer, my drink of choice. Um, you can't actually um, smell me because this is a smell-free zone. And, you know, maybe we should actually do a kind of... Um, uh, uh, we should maybe do a, just like a scratch and sniff this. Because I am actually... highly am... <laughs> I'm actually stinking of at the moment of Jay's fluid because I, I, shush, go away your room and play Xbox. So what happened was that I was out in the garden and everything was kind of you know getting a bit hectic and it was we were putting ties and Liam was was helping dig. He was doing the digging in the main. To be honest, it was like you know my back etc. So we were out in the garden and I'm stinking of Jay's fluid because we had to clean all the tools because they had to be disinfected. So I'm stinking of Jay's fluid. I didn't get my beard done. I've got no makeup on. There's Liam walking behind me, and I've got my bottle of dinger because it's a day in the garden. So here we are. Takes a scoosh, searches for the questions. I printed out, out some someone's. Uh, I thought this was really interesting, right? This is from uh, Steve Drysdale, right? And I've got shady memories of this, right? Steve Drysdale. Hello Fish, I have a question about the Saliva Tears Tour Scottish Leg. I was lucky enough to, to see four of these shows, all brilliant. After the Grangemouth gig, you actually stayed at my parents' house. My dad drove a petrol tanker and knew your father. In the morning, my mum got you to phone your mum as it was your birthday. 26? Question mark? No. I, I was a particularly annoying 17-year-old. Talk about that one end through there. Anyway, I remember it really well as it was a big deal for me, but do you remember about that leg of the tour? Any standout moments or stories? Blah, blah, blah. I've got, when I saw that question, I went, whoa. I do, I do remember something about that. The 1982 Saliva Tears Tour, we called it um, the Saliva Tears Tour, tour, and we had these wee posters that, that uh, Diz Minute had made up uh, when he was in the band. And... Um, it was this weird thing with the hands and the eye and the crying eye. It was it was pretty acid, and um, it was the never-ending tour. But it made it look like we were on tour. And I think rather than just having individual dates, it was like I think the tour was eighty-two to eighty-four or something, eighty-two, eighty-three, or eighty-one. Anyway, so it made us look like we were a big band because it was a tour. It wasn't just individual dates. But the first tour, right, proper tour that we booked was that Scottish tour. And that was on the back of the, the Tommy Vance um, Friday Rock Show broadcast. And that gave us something that was a bit more than, a lot more elaborate and a lot more kudos than the demo that we had, which was uh, that Garden Party charting a single He Knows You Know demo that we recorded. And I, th I think it was, it was 81. And that was all we really had until we did the Rock Show. And having done the rock show and having got the, 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 the recording of it to kind of use as a calling card, it meant that we had a little bit more oomph, you know. So when I phoned up promoters, because I was booking all the, the tour back then, and I was using uh, the mainly the back of Sounds, the Sounds newspaper, which was a weekly edition. I used to have all the gigs back in the days when you had weekly music papers rather than monthlies. Uh, the weeklies were able were great for us because you were able to, there was a fast turnover and you could find, you always had the phone numbers of the gigs. So I used to phone up the numbers of the gigs whenever I was trying to find places. 
And I put together this tour and it was the first proper tour we did because we all decided that that was the moment we were going to go professional. Everybody ditched their jobs and it was like, okay, this is, we're going for it. And um, it was it was a huge jump. It was a massive mental jump for us. And we got in the back of the green Commer van, which we called Margaret, and we drove up. We stopped off at Scarborough and I think it was the Taboo Club we played in, in Scarborough. And we stayed with Steve Rothery's mum in Whitby after that gig and then moved up to Scotland. And a lot of the time that we were here, we stayed in North Berwick, which is very close to where I live now. And it's only about 20 minutes. And that was where my mum and dad, a long time ago, right? <sighs> Different story. My mum and dad bought a, a, a kind of getaway house, like a little flat there in North Berwick. North Berwick's a kind of seaside town. And um, it was very vibrant. And my dad played golf down there a lot. So that was why he got the place in there. And when my dad's garage, the Dick Brothers garage, hit a, a major rocks. And um, when it hit big rocks, they um, moved. And uh, But back in 1982, um, my mum and dad had this flat, which was right down on the front of North Berwick. I mean, basically, you walked out the front door and you walked 20 yards and you were standing on the beach. It was a beautiful place. And my mum and dad gave us that. And uh, so we kind of stayed there for a lot of the touring. We were like bungee jump touring. So we were kind of, we were um, uh, we were going out and playing a, a gig and then coming back most of the time. Sometimes well, when we played Inverness, it was a bit too far. But that number one beach road, that was the address, was the place where we all hold up. And there was a bit, I think it was three bedrooms, three bedrooms in it. And then the rest, we'd all crew and stuff slept on, on the slept on the floor and things. It was a great place, it was a great time. Um, but Grangemouth, the thing I remember at Grangemouth, of course, back in those days, I used to I used to go on stage in bare feet for whatever reason. It was a Sandy Shaw thing. I don't know why I did it. And uh, but I used to go on wearing bare feet, and I remember playing. I think it was the International Hotel in Grangemouth. And there's, there's two things, there's two stories and two questions that are related to that experience. The Grangemouth Hotel, we played kind of late afternoon. It was, um, I remember it still being light because we played football in the outside the hotel, on the lawn of the hotel. And I actually lost one of my original fish earrings uh, there. I had two. The original fish earrings, which goes back into this other question. Um, the original fish earrings, I was given by my kind of, she wasn't my girlfriend at that point, but she was my girlfriend in, in back in 19, uh, 1980. And she gave me, just before I went down to join Marillion, she gave me two earrings that were made from Mexican silver. And I lost one of them playing football on the lawn at the Grangemouth Hotel. So if you've got a metal detector, it's probably still sitting there in the thatch of the grass somewhere. And I was devastated because I lost it, but I still had the other one. I'll come back to that story. But um, but Grangemouth that night, I remember I was probably the only ever musician or the only ever singer, right, that had 
there was a complaint about the gig, right? And the complaint about the gig was that my feet were stinking, right? <laughs> it's true. They were, you could, the front row, I mean, because we were, it was, the stage was like about that high. And the front row, they were, they were kind of, it was like, woof, and they were minging, right? And after that, so after that, we, we used to try and just bounce houses. And it was uh, because my dad had a garage and he knew all the tankers and it was Grangemouth where the tankers came from and this guy lived there. And Mr. Drysdale put us up in the house that night. And um, it, was a, it was a brilliant tour. Um, that was the Kunze Newt gig where uh, we had the Giza Bun thing. We supported Palace up in Aberdeen. We did a gig with Palace in Alawa, I think it was. We played uh, the the Dial Inn in, in Glasgow, and which was this kind of, it was a cellar bar. And we, it was the first time I ever did a show in the afternoon. And we played it kind of, I think it was like one o'clock or something. And then we had to hang about Glasgow, right? We know where to go, no hotels, stinky feet, and then play another gig at night. But those shows, I think there was about 20, 20 gigs or something in, in all. But that was kind of where we really came together. Mark Kelly was in the band. He had his birthday up here. And that was another thing because we played, uh, we played in Kelso at the Cross Keys. Oh, we were supposed to play the Cross Keys in Kelso. And Mark and I had a bit of a play fight. We were just kind of mucking about. And he was kind of coming at me doing his Mark Kelly bit. And I'm swinging my arms about. And I caught Mark, I, when he came at me, I threw a defensive um, a defensive swing and his arm shot out and it didn't just shoot out his, his arm came out his shoulder and he dislocated his shoulder and this was like on the, the Scottish tour and it was like ah it's all gone and um, luckily he got it repaired and um, everything was okay but that night instead of playing with Marillion I actually sang with Blewett who was the band that I was in before Marillion and I sang with Blue It that night to about, there was only about 30 people or something, 40 people in there. But um, but it was an amazing tour and lots of, there's a lot of stories from that tour. I've got lots of fond memories. It was the first time I met uh, Avril McIntosh and Avril McIntosh who became the an engineer on the Clutching at Straws uh, recording with Chris Kimsey, when Chris Kimsey was producer. Um, and also Avril and Andy did the, the, the remix of Script for a Jester's Tear and the 5 to 1, and they did the, the, the 5 to 1 on uh, the Clutching at Straws album, and they're doing the, Clutch and, the, the 5 to 1 mix, my very first ever 5 to 1 mix on the Velchmans album. But Avril was from uh, up above Inverness, and she won a competition on a radio station to meet the band and we played Inverness Ice Rink. And I met Avril back then, and that was the night when Avril became infatuated with the music business and decided she wanted to be involved in the music business and started off the journey to become the engineer. And I always remember, it was uh, after, the, uh, um, uh, after the Inverness gig, eating venison burgers out of a van. And I remember on the morning of the Inverness gig, sitting, on uh, the banks of Loch Ness, eating uh, eating rolls that we bought from a bakery that had just opened. It was lots of great, great memories. But to go back to the fish year ring, so I lost that one and I needed to get others. And I had picked up a couple that were kind of iffy butty sort of things, but 
I had um, a set of earrings made. I think it was in about 1984, right? And I had them made at a, a place called, I think it was called the, the, the Great Frog. And it was in, it was a shop in Carnaby Street. And I got them to make about, I got about six or seven of them made at the time. And I wore them for ages. And there, were, there was different colored ones. I had, I had black, I had purple, green. But uh, they were never the same as, as the original ones that I got, I got from Leslie way back. Actually on New Year's night of, it would be, what was it? It was the, the, the 30, 31st of December, and that would be 1980 on the way down to joining Mooley. But the fish earrings, one of the problems was I kept on losing them on stage. When I was wearing scarves or whatever, I kept, they kept on getting caught and losing them. And I've had people try to grab them. In the past, I've tried to grab them. Not a good idea. And uh, so I kind of gave up on them. It was, they, they were too dangly and, and stuff. So I just go back and I just wear a stud, a single stud. And this stud I was given by my wife for Christmas a couple of years ago. So there was Saliva Tear Tours, Drysdale, Grangemouth Hotel, Smelly Feet. There you go. Uh, Ian Knightley, hi, just of interest, how did you and the band cope with the quite sudden fame of when you released Misplaced Childhood and how well it sold and the pressure of releasing the next album? Bah. Doof, doof, doof. Um, I think we were brilliant. When we played the Hammy Odeon on the script tour, it took everybody by surprise. Um, who wasn't a fan of Marillion. Um, for the people that knew Marillion, they knew that we'd played, you know, 150 or 170 shows or whatever. I can't, don't even know how many, but it was a lot of shows before we, we, we got there. So there was this huge underground swell that, that wasn't identified in the papers. And of course, now we've got an album out. We were on top of the pops. So where did this band come from? But the thing was that between that point and misplaced, you know, we carried on this kind of slow metamorphosis. You know, we were playing big clubs. You know, the venue was the last gig on the Market Squares tour. Then it was Hammersmith Orient. And then uh, then we, it was, you know, into Germany and Holland. And, you know, 1980, by 1984, with the real, real tour, we were playing decent-sized gigs. We were playing town halls and audience and... and uh, in the UK, but um, you know, when Misplaced happened, it was still a shock because although as a rock band, we were playing good sized venues, we weren't doing arenas, but we were playing, yeah, it was like, you know, two, 3,000 people a night. And that was echoed in Holland and in Germany as well. But when the single hit, that catapulted us into a completely new ball game. And that was difficult. I found it very difficult. At first, you kind of, you know, you know, we're number two in the charts, blah, blah, blah. We had a number one album. And at first, it was great. And you couldn't switch it off. I think that was the problem. You, you just the demands on the band, and it's especially me, you know, I mean, uh, I think especially myself, because I was the front man, I was doing 
pretty much all the interviews. I was the identifiable face of the band. And, you know, I was being asked to everything that was on the go. I mean, film premieres, you know, et cetera, et cetera, you know. And of course, when Kaylee happened, not only did I have the success of the single to deal with, but I also had this entire um, intrusion um, into my private life, which I've, I found that very difficult. You know, who is Kay and blah, blah, blah. And of course, the press being as the press are, there was the whole alcohol party guy, da, da, da. And, um, you know, if I did everything that I was supposed to have done back then, I wouldn't be here on a iPhone talking to you now. It was uh, it was pretty wild and I had a rough ride. Um, my ego got out of control for a while, but I was lucky I had some good people around me. Andy Field, who was my uh, uh, production manager, tour manager, and w one of my best friends, and who was Yatta replaced years later after Andy sadly died in the early 90s. And um, Andy kept me, you know, on online, uh, <laughs> wrong word. <laughs> Andy kept me, uh, kept my feet on the ground. And when I was an asshole, he said, you're an asshole. And there was a lot of people that were scared to say that to me because of my size and they didn't want to upset me, which is again, one of the problems you have when you become, you know, in the when you're in the fame game. It's like, you know, people don't want to upset you and they, you know, trying to make everything right, which sometimes you really don't need. And sometimes you need somebody to say, hey, you did, wouldn't have done that six months ago, you know? And Andy was good. Um, and the band and I kind of grew apart at, at that point. You know, that was when, you know, we all started to move. One of the stories always, well, it's, it's one image that I always go back to. And it was, uh, it was a memory that it kind of stuck strongly with me. Was I remember being in Birmingham and we were playing the Odeon and we were walking down one of the street, the high street, wherever it was next to the Odeon. And I was walking with the band and I think we'd been going to a record shop or something. And we were walking down and all the guys were me. And as we walked down the pavement, there were a bunch of fans were coming up, two or three guys were coming up the, the street and they went, ah, fish, 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 fish. And it was like, hi, how are you doing? Stop. And the rest of the guys just walked past, walked on, right? And the band just walked on and left me and I was just left signing. And it was, I don't know, there was, there was something, there was something very metaphorical in that kind of, in that um, little scene of my career. And um, and it was it was tough. I mean, I think you know, as I said, you know, your ego gets out of control. You you don't know how to handle it. I mean, nobody can prepare for that. Nobody can, you know, when everybody's turning around and saying, "Oh, you're a genius, you're brilliant, you're da 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 da," and you know, when you start to believe it, you know, another guy who I had with me at that time was Keith Goodwin, and Keith was one of my dearest friends, and he was the original press officer. Uh, for Marillion. And when we signed to EMI, I actually asked, I, I wanted Keith to be kept as, as part of our kind of team, even though we had the EMI press office. But he wasn't there really to do press. He had a business that relied on Marillion as, as a kind of 
a, a flagship band for him. But at the same time, I wanted him around because he was somebody I really trusted and his opinion I trusted. And, you know, he would call, uh, you know, he would call it as, it as it was. And so did his wife, Pat. Both of them have sadly passed away, but they were uh, dear, dear friends to me. And I tried to keep myself, I tried to keep people around me that kind of, that were like that, that were grounded people that, you know, knew exactly who I was. You know, it wasn't, it was it was handy to have the fish moniker because that was like another person, which, oh, that's another area, um, you know. But it was, you know, you could kind of go, well, that's fish and this is Derek, you know, which was kind of, a dangerous mental plane to surf on sometimes. Um, you know, when you could kind of blame the alter ego, but it wasn't really an alter ego, it was all myself. But you know, we get deep and this isn't a therapist session. Um, but yeah, it was difficult. And, I've, and the thing, but the thing was that at least I'd had some training. You know, I didn't go from being a complete nonentity to, you know, being, you know, Star Spangled Kid on the Street vibe. You know, I did have, there was a curve, although the last part of it was, you know, it was steep and dizzy and, you know, and, um, and you know, I, I managed to deal with it. And I think, you know, there's, there's always been times in my life, I mean, where, you know, you have got to park your ego. And then again, there's sometimes you've got to let your ego go a bit because that's what people want you on a stage or whatever, then, you know, that's where it's allowable. But I mean, uh, Anyway, let's move on. Um, Gary Allen Marlton, is there a reason? Uh, is there a reason an electric live CD of the Thirteen Star was not released apart from the DVD in search of the Thirteen Star? Um, I don't really know why we didn't do, or why I didn't do a Thirteen Star live. Maybe, you know, I kind of, I don't know why we, we didn't do one back then. I mean, yes, we had the, the, I think having the DVD out of the, the American show, I think that was kind of, um, I felt that was maybe enough at the time. But, you know, as I found, I mean, people keep on asking me, going, why don't you do a DVD? Why don't you do a DVD? Do you know why? Because they don't sell. Everybody wants a DVD, right? It was interesting that um, the Fishheads Club DVD, which we did, which we shot in this room, we, uh, I discussed last week. It was it was great. It was a wonderful DVD. Didn't sell, right? But the CD, everybody wanted the CD, and I, I kind of learned a lesson from that. So when we did Leamington Spa, you know what we did was the DVD was a giveaway with a live album, and it, it, I don't know what it is. It's like people went for that and went, "This is brilliant." They wouldn't buy a DVD on its own, but they bought the live album with the DVD as the bonus. And um, the problem with DVDs are. That they cost a lot of money to put together, you know? Um, and as far as, you know, if you're going to do it, you've got to get, you know, you're talking a five camera, seven camera shoot or whatever, and then you've got the edit. And, you know, to be perfectly honest, I don't have the sales that qualify, you know, spending a lot of money on make, making a, a major kind of DVD film project. On my farewell tour, you know, when I do the farewell thing, yes. I mean that's an obvious one, but um, but you know for for the tours up to now, you know the, it's it's been difficult to make them qualify. The Field of Crows DVD 
Uh, Scott and Crows didn't sell at all. I mean, I've still got lots of DVDs in the garage, if anybody's interested. Um, but they just don't work. But 13 Star, you know, we had the Nearfest, which was a, a, a great performance. Um, 13 Star, I've decided, because I, I, I kind of forgot, you forget how the time goes. And I was kind of, I realised that... Uh, 30 Star came out in, what was it, 2007? I went, that's 13 years. And it's the only one, you know, the, 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 the big remastered versions of everything, you know, apart from Vigil in the Wilderness of Mirrors and Eternal Exile, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, all the other ones, you know, Rain Gods with Zippo, Songs from the Mirror, Suits, Sunsets and Empire, Fellini Days, all these, these remasters, The Field of Crows, you know, they're all there as the hardback remasters with the three CDs and... The, the the distinctive legacy kind of you know the versions that I say these are the albums you know this is that period and I realised as I said that Thirteen Star is kind of it's it's been out it's been gone a while now and it doesn't exist so what I'm going to do is probably next year not this year because there's too much happening this year. But next year, and I've already talked with Steve Vances about it just last week, and I said, you know, we should get a remaster together for the 30 Star uh, um, album. So we've got Nearfest to pick up on and, and, and things like that. So, so yeah, so there will be a 30 Star kind of remaster. So I'm going to refresh the page because I'm waffling on here. Come on, get away. Bloody tech. Uh, Silvio Gomez, hello from Santorito de Sapatia, Minas Gerais, Brazil. Hello. Dario de Cala, come to Italy here. Yo, yo, yo. Richard Holmes, evening fish from wet Wiltshire. It's lovely here, it's brilliant. Um, uh, Finland, Anders Tani Bjorkman. Liverpool again, Mario Ferrugia, uh, hi from Malta. She's gay, international, so it is, absolutely international. Uh, Bob Falk, Munich backstage, yeah, the tour. Is that? I was, you know, when there was announcements, uh, you know, just a couple of days ago when, there was, you know, California was turning around and saying, no, we don't see any gigs till 2021. I'm going, don't say that. And I'm still kind of got every single digit crossed that um, October, November is, is going to happen. Um, you know, obviously I'm an avid watcher of the news, but I do try and restrict myself, you know, because it can become too much. You know, I mean, you know, I get up in the morning, I have a cup of coffee, you know, I'll, and I'll throw on Sky or I'll catch a really early CNN show just to get up to date. Then I'll go through at the computer, wear my dressing gown, you know, as I go, my Japanese kimono, if it was, my woolly kimono. And I go through and I check the computer out and then I check my emails and then I'll check the Independent, check the Guardian, check the Embry the News. And uh, yeah, it, it does get a little bit um, a bit crazy. And I have, to, I have to walk away and just, you know, get away from the eternal feed of it all at night. I'll sit down and, and um, we'll watch Netflix. And then just before we go to bed, I'll just give myself a quick zap just to give an update. And, so, um, and 
to be honest, it's like I've, I've got CNN. I used to hate CNN because CNN was the only English speaking channel that used to be in hotel rooms in the eighties. It's like, you know, when you used to check in a hotel and you used to go through before the days of being able to buy movies and things like that. You know, it was like, you know, you went zipping through and you found this, you know, it was dreadful back then. And now it's kind of, I actually quite like it. It is my American channel of choice just now. And, um, but I love the way it's the names. It's like, they've got to have like amazing names to become kind of presenters on, on CNN. Was that like, Wolf Blitzer? <laughs> Wolf Blitzer. That's a great name that is. He's like, I christen you Wolf. You know, his, his dad's a hippie and stuff, but it's like, you know, it's like, well, if you're going to watch work for CNN, son, you're going to have to get a different name. And it's like all the ladies that are working on, on CNN as well. I mean, there's, there's fantastic names. It's like, you know, it's like they must, they make them up. I'm sure they make them up, you know, but great characters. But that's kind of my program of choice. Daniel Edberg, hello from Sweden. Keith Dockerty saw you in 1986 with the Battlelands and Hugmanay. One of the best gigs I've ever been to. What a way to start. Yeah, Battlelands, brilliant gig. But I was going to try and get the Battlelands, but it's, it's, it's an expensive gig, not so much because of the actual venue, because the Battlelands, the Battlelands, the stage crew at the Battlelands used to be world famous, literally world famous, right? Because the Battlelands is upstairs. And the only way you can get all the gear up to the Battlelands ballroom, which has got a sprung floor, which is another thing, right? The only way you can get that gear up is up this really narrow, very steep staircase. And the Battlelands crew were one of the hardest and fastest and like most incredible stage crews, like, you know, on the planet. For they used to like take trucks and whip this gear up, whip this gear up, whip this gear up up these stairs. And after the gig, they've got to bring it all down again. But the other thing with the sprung floor, the, the always, I always remember about the Battlelands, right? Because it's a sprung floor, the PA used to be on that sprung floor. So when you were doing Market Square Heroes or Margaret Weber and you're going, come on, and everybody starts to bounce and jump, the entire PA used to go. And there was a little devil inside of me. I admit there was a little devil inside of me. And I used to know that all the crew and the tour managers and everything, because as soon as you got that place jumping, right, and literally bouncing, right, the stage manager, the manager, every single member of our crew was standing there holding on to these straps, trying to stop the PA from toppling into the crowd. And you used to see them white-eyed, like mixy rabbits, you know. And you, you, the PA would jump, incredible. That, and the same with the balcony at the old, uh, the Glasgow Apollo. If you got the Glasgow Apollo jumping, you could literally see the balcony move, right? And I remember being on that balcony at a bad company gig or something. And it was like, you know, you, you used to go, whoa, this is going to go, man. It's going to go. Uh, Christian Freer Balderson, love from Denmark. Mark Daniel, hello from Falkirk. Oh, put the glasses. San Paulo, Brazil, Jean Henrique de Silveira. Clean's glasses. Oh, listen, I've got to show you. It's, um, you'll like this. It's, um, I go, I try and go down the supermarket. I go down the supermarket once a week. And now, uh, um, 
I, I hate going there. I, you know, I've been lucky a couple of times. I've, I've, I've managed to kind of get there when there was a minimal queue and there was only like one or two in front of me. And I, you know, I actually found tin tomatoes one day. I did, really, tin tomatoes. I know, but it's like they're buying the two things. So I get, I, I go there once a week and I get six bottles of Erdinger, this alcohol-free German beer, which is really cool. Then I buy a couple of bottles of alcohol-free Prosecco and a couple of bottles of iceberg alcohol-free wine. And then I buy a big six pack of sparkling water. And that does it for the whole week, right? The whole week. And, um, but you know, it's the social distancing when you go down there. And, you know, I went down there the other day and like they put arrows in the aisles and I never saw the arrows, right? You know, I'm just going down with the trolley and it's like, and I got to like three meters off the end of the aisle and the guy goes, Follow the arrows, mate. Follow the arrows. Wrong way, wrong way. And I had to turn around and, and follow the arrows all the way back. It was like, and I missed that, right? But I thought, I've got I've got a great one. You, This one you're going to love, right? It's like, it's like, you need a mask. If you really need a mask, right? I don't know. I've found the perfect mask right, for social distancing, right, it's great, and people do stay away from you when you wear this mask, right, you ready, perfect, wear this down Tesco's, people just stay completely away from you, right, guaranteed, it's a virus-free environment, right, yeah, there you go, brilliant, so the next time when you see when you hear something in the paper about some strange Scotsman that's been done, it's a great masses. You can actually drink beer with it. Perfect. Drink beer. Oh, this will be a creepy bit. There you are. This, <coughs> this is the original Grendel mask, the original one. It was out of my possession for a while because in the late 90s, hold on, where's it going? Do, 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 reboot. I'll get to the story. And I'm just rebooting this. Oh, come on, man. Lost the feed, Nivellin. Oh, here we go. Spinning disc, spinning disc, spinning disc. Try and go back to the questions again. Oh, there we go. Right. The original Grendel mask. This was only out of my possession for a short time and it was in the 1990s and I was in financial hell. It was really, it was, we were, it was, it was close to housey housey. I mean, really close to housey housey. And um, 
we did a memorabilia sale and I sold off a lot of my old stage costumes and you know, people put bids and, and before eBay and stuff was kind of going. And this went and it went to Italy and Fabio, I think it was Fabio from Italy had it. And he paid something like about 400 quid for this. And um, he kept it and he, he looked after it for me. And he used to use it on every Halloween. He used to bring it out to frighten his kids. <laughs> and he used to read them stories wearing this mask, right? But this is the original Grendel mask. And I got this on the, uh, the Market Square Heroes Tour. And we got it from a theatrical costumers in London. And we rented it. It was an extortionate kind of hire fee, right? Extortionate. And when I got it, I needed to be able to sing. So there used to be a bit down there. There was a full mask, right? And I had to cut this section out of it so that I could sing it. I could put the microphone in it. And uh, and at the end of the tour, it was like there was kind of, we were getting nasty letters saying that they wanted it back. And we knew we damaged it. So... We ended up having, we, I, th I think we bought it. Well, I think we eventually bought it, but we didn't get any more letters, but I, I think we bought it. And it, it stayed with me and it lasted that tour and it went out and that's been on stage at Hammersmith Odeon and it's been, you know, all sorts of places. One time at Leamington Spa, we did a charity thing, but you could get your photograph taken wearing it and, you know, and then we donated the funds to charity. But it's a, it's a bummer. Inside, it's kind of... It's basically fiberglass. It's not metal. It's fiberglass, right? And it's got a lot of really nasty pointy bits. So when you when your hair, it was okay, but nowadays it's it's actually quite painful. It's like a little, it's like a little kind of mini Iron Maiden head thing, you know. And uh, but it's it's great. But you know, I wear it down, wear it down Tesco's. Social distancing. Yeah. Stay away from me. I'm a nutter. But the, the Grendel thing, there was this was the questions with Grendel, right? Uh, Sergey Lenkov, please share your memories about the history of Grendel song. And Andy McIntosh said, uh, "This is what everybody wants to know: Do you still have the tape of the tower that you put Grendel lyrics to?" I don't think I've got the tape. I have got, I've got a box. I've got a box of cassette tapes, and. Uh, and I still have a cassette player. And I get nervous to put them on because after all these years, they, they come up, which will lead me into another thing. Well, I, um, but I don't think I've got the original the original tape. I don't have the original one that, that, that Marillion sent up to me for uh, for when Diz and I were, were going to join the band. I don't know that. Diz has probably got that. He was an avid collector. But... Um, but I don't have that. You can find it. I've heard it on, there's, there's a couple of bootlegs, really nasty bootlegs. Um, there's some nasty bootlegs out there where you can hear it. But I mean, the thing with Grendel was that uh, when I first heard it, right, when I first heard it and it got to that section, the ba 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 I can't get the time right. ba 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 Mekin either. <laughs> and, um, when I heard that, I just went, supper's ready. I said, this is, you're with the gods of me, God, bowing around. I went, supper's ready. You know, we can't do this. The supper's ready. And we already knew that, you know, everybody was in the Genesis. It was like, okay, we'll go for it and we'll change it. it, it you know, and it was like, it's different. It's different. Okay, like, da, 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 everybody. Yeah, yeah, okay, we'll do it. It's different. 
right? It's not supper's ready. That was the mantra. It's not supper's ready. It's not supper's ready. Tony Smith, the Genesis manager, when he heard it, uh, and I, well, he didn't hear it till a lot later, right, which surprised me. And he said, if I had heard that song at the time, he said, we would have sued you. <laughs> Laughingly. I think it was laughing. I can never tell when Tony Smith was telling a joke. Serious man, big beard, right? But um, but yeah, so I was given I was given this thing and I said, write lyrics about it. And at the time, I was reading this book, but I think the guy was called, was it Richard Gardner? And um, I think it was called Beowulf. I can't remember. Um, or No, it was called Grendel. And um, basically this book was all about the kind of Beowulf story, but taken from the perspective of the monster. So it wasn't about the nice kind of like, you know, Nordic kind of people that were all kind of, you know, getting massacred and stuff. It was like about this monster that was being persecuted by these nasty villagers and about how they killed his mother and he was wreaking revenge on them. And I thought it was a fantastic book. And John Gardner, yeah. And um, I thought the book was fantastic and I was reading it at that time in, in, in January 81. And I went, yeah, that, that could work. This, you know, and I, I set myself the task of trying to, you know, find a lyric out of this. And I remember being down in Aston Clinton in the, the house with Steve Rothery and saying, you know, it's got to, it's got to have a start. It had, it had to have a section to, to kind of bring the whole thing through, you know. And I remember when Steve put the, got the acoustic guitar out and started playing the original riff at the front and then, you know, midnight sun, bids moves. That's enough, that's enough. Bids moves farewell. And it kind of came to be, you know, and it was, you know, this massive track, but it always had that ba 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 And it was it was interesting when I was hearing it on, uh, when I heard it on the, the new script for Justice, you remaster. <laughs> and it was, and, and you're trying to find where the one is, because it was like, you know, ba 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 I'm not that, anyway. And, you know, um, a rhythm section sometimes it used to move right and you just had to kind of for me I just had to kind of go lock into the lyric and just go just deliver the lyric and just hope that the drums kind of kind of followed it it was always a section that it could go horrifically wrong sometimes and uh, it, oh it did quite and it was like oh fuck here we go and um but it was it was great and it's time and it was it was a wonderful song to play in, in 1981 I got a bit tired at the end, you know, the, the oh, oh, oh. Oh. you know, having to do that every night, kind of, it, it did, it did get a bit tedious. I mean, I did enjoy frightening people and there are, you know, frightening the kids in the front row. I mean, watching, the, literally watching the fear in their eyes because they're looking at this guy who's got the remnants of makeup behind that mask, right? With eyes that belong to a creature from the great hell of beyond, right? For whatever reason. And um, so yeah, I used to like frightening kids. And, uh, but it became, it, it was so, such a long song. And it was, it was like every time you got into the set, it was so massive that it was, um, it was such a huge chunk. And, and then the new songs were coming in and you know, I had to move out and I had to, I remember playing at Redden, Redden was, a great performance and I think you know I think opening up with it was like you know bang you know take that which I, I still always love doing that doing something that's really that just throws people you know they don't expect that number to come at that point 
And playing it at Leamington Spa was great. I loved singing it at Leamington Spa, and you can hear it on the 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 the, the convention gig tapes, the convention, the live CD from the that that Leamington convention. It's great. And everybody got really into it. And they ate that ba 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 ba. Frank Usher and stuff got really in it. It was really aggressive. Uh, but I just don't want to play it every night. And it is a huge chunk. People go, well, play Grendel. It's not. It's 20 minutes. 20 minutes out of an hour and 45 minutes set playing a song from 1982. Nah, nah. And it's, it's, it's kind of, it's simplistic and it's naive and it's beautiful all at the same time. And, when it came down to the script album, when it came down to picking the tracks for the script album, Grendel was not going to be on script. But what Grendel did was it satisfied the fans because all the people that had been following us through the Beach Chief Dunstable to, you know, from Luton to Friars to the Marquee, blah, 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 you know, they wanted a piece of vinyl. It was, they wanted to go like, this is the band that I follow. This is Marillion and this is a piece of vinyl. They're a real band, you know. It's not just a demo tip, it's a vinyl. There you are. And having a first single, having Market Square Heroes and Three Ports Down for the Candy, which I, I used to love as a song, and having Grendel, 19 Minutes or whatever it was, and on the B-side, giving us probably, Guinness Book Records, longest B-side in the world at that time. Um, been able to get rid of it on that, that. So basically what people got was a mini album, you know? And it got rid of it off script because I think if we put it on the script album, I think we could have fallen very seriously and taken heavy hits on the Genesis comparisons because it was like something was ready. I mean, no bones about it. And, um, but it was a great song for its time, really proud of it. Um, I've got a great deal of fondness for it and you know this helmet is in my office it's on the top it's on the top of my bookshelf in the office and uh, I think it's great that's cool I'll go back to this uh, I don't know where are we at um, Ross Monroe hello from the Highlands looking back on your time with you my Marillion and Vigil there's a part of you wished you signed to Charisma in 1982, or are you still happy with the decision at the time? I'm glad we didn't sign the records, the recording contract with Charisma. It wouldn't have been right, and to go back to what I was just saying about the Grendel thing, you know, um, I don't think, I think it would have been detrimental I think to the band. I think signing to the same label that brought Genesis to the fore, you know, even though by that point, you know, it was Virgin and stuff like that. They the Genesis were on Virgin. It was um I think it would the comparison we we would have fallen into that hole that with a, I think it, it could have done us a lot of damage. And I think we're going to EMI, I mean we're going to EMI, we were going with a, a label that had Kate Bush, that had Iron Maiden, that had The Floyd and, and loads of other great bands. But the main reason was, the main reason was that EMI had their own distribution. They had worldwide kind of tentacles. They had a huge, they had international departments in every country. They had the machine, the big machine and charisma, 
didn't have the machine and charisma were basically, I think, as I said at that time, they were going through Virgin or about to go through Virgin. And when a company is going through another company, right, you've got another hit, if you know what I mean, which meant royalties, etc., etc., blah, blah, blah. And going to EMI, we were going with a massive international renowned company. And they were a brilliant company, you know, for us at that time. Brilliant. Without EMI, you know, there would Kaylee would not have been the Kaylee it is. And, you know, we had our arguments and all the rest of it. But I mean Manchester Square, the Manchester Square version of EMI was stunning, you know. And I've got so many fond memories and I made a lot of great friends, as I talked about last week, in that company. It was a shame. But I mean you know, charisma was, was wrong for us. I mean, I'm still in touch. I mean, I think as a publishing company, they were great. Um, but I mean, Marillion Publishing, you know, it was a collecting thing. I mean, nobody's really worked our publishing. I mean, you know, Kaylee's never been on a movie, which, you know, you kind of, huh? no, you'd think it would be, you know, somewhere there'd be a director go, this song's perfect for kind of, you know, this film. But none of our songs have ever really made it. I mean, um, They've never been used by third parties. And so, I mean, Charisma were a collection company, um, which kind of uh, takes me in another thing. Somebody asked, I don't have the name, but somebody asked last week. And uh, copyrights. And there's always a bit of confusion about how this all works. When we did the deals, and uh, in the early 80s, it was, um, I didn't really know about copyrights. I just knew it was a record deal. And I just, I didn't know that there was a thing called a licensing deal, right? And you could actually keep your own copyrights and license your material to a record company. We didn't license our material to EMI. We signed a deal that in which EMI own the copyrights of the recording forever, right? So they can pretty much do what they want with all the material. And even though that we paid for the recordings, so we, when we went into Hansen Studios to record Misplaced Childhood, um, we paid back EMI the money that was that was paid to Chris Kimsey, that was paid to Hans Studios, blah, blah, blah. We paid all that through royalties. And um, they owned the copyright. Um, so they owned the songs. And it kind of, wow, it sticks in my craw, but I've got to bring the yin and the yang up here and I've got to play devil's advocate because I have run when I had the Dick Brothers label, I had Tam White and the Dream Disciples signed to my label and I never recouped the cost of recording. Um, I never made a single penny off any act that we put through the Dick Brothers label. The only act that ever made money on the Dick Brothers label was myself. And the money I was making on Dick Brothers was actually funding um, the other projects, right? So when you look at EMI, you've got to, you've got to look at the business as a whole and go, 
well, you might, uh, they threw so many bands against the wall, right? To see if they would stick, right? I mean, Marillion came through, but for every Marillion that came through, there were scores, if not hundreds of bands that didn't get past even the first single. We had an album deal with EMI, but there's so many bands. So, and, you know, at the end of the day, it's a company, it's a business. And as I said, I can sit here as the, the artist from the band going, we should have our own copyrights, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but in the same way, you can understand if you've ever run a record company that, you know, not, not everything works. And then when the one comes through, it's helping pain for the others. Problem is when the one comes through and you are the one that comes through and later in years, you realize just how much money you made for the label, then it still does stick in your craw a little bit. You know, when, you know, in, you know, 2020, you're still on the same royalty as you were aware in 1982, despite having made a lot of money for that company. But as I said, there's a balance between the two, you know. Our recording copyrights, all the Marillion recording copyrights belong to EMI. They, as I said, they have complete control over them. Um, we get paid a royalty. Uh, I won't discuss the numbers, but it's pretty naff. You know, nobody and no member of Marillion was has ever been, you know, a millionaire, right? Unless they won the lottery or something else, right? Publishing was a different matter. Again, with publishing, you have the choice between licensing or copyright. Again, our management and the lawyer that was advising our management at the time, they went, they gave, they sold the copyrights to Charisma and Charisma the copyrights went hit and run and hit and run. They now reside with Sony, right? And uh, basically Charisma stroke hit and run stroke Sony, um, they own all the Marillion publishing copyrights, right? F for perpetuity, right? When I had my argument with EMI, um, it was after the Vigil album, when I left EMI, or when I'm sorry, when I left Marillion, I wanted to leave EMI and I wasn't allowed to, they activated uh, what was called the leaving member clause, which meant that if one person from the band leaves, you're still automatically signed to the label. And I had to basically, I can't go into a lot of detail about this for various legal reasons, but um, I had to sign to EMI and Vigil, I had to go out on EMI and I had a deal that EMI basically, it wasn't really renegotiated, you know? It was pretty much the same as the, the, the Marillion deal, except, you know, I was a separate entity. You know, I watched the, the paper the other day, it was with Jellyfish, kind of rang a bell. But splitting an entity in two, you have the two separate things. And, um, and EMI owned the copyright to Vigil in the Wilderness of Minnows, right? Or Warners do. And I've tried to buy that copyright back. It's been, you know, everything was repaid on Vigil years and years and years and years ago. It's never had a physical release, you know, for a very, very long time. When I eventually get this album out, it will be the first physical release. You can get it on Spotify, you can digitally download it, but there's been no physical release. I really wanted to buy the album back, but 
Again, I've got to put on the other hat and, you know, those copyrights are assets to that company and they've got shareholders, blah, 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 blah. So Vigil is a copyright holding of EMI, which is now Parlophone through Warners, right? And we have, we should be able to get that. Well, we, I do, I have to do a licensing deal from the Chocolate Frog Record Company Limited, which is my record company. Chocolate Frog has got to license this album back from uh, Warners so I can put it out eventually when the people get back into their offices or whatever or access the files and sign off on the, you know, the licensing agreement, then I will know when it's going to come out. But at the moment, I have no idea. So when I left after the big legal fracas, uh, when I left EMI and signed to Polydor, I was wise enough by then, and I had a manager in John Kavanagh, and we did a licensing deal with Polydor. So my recordings, I paid for, right? But I owned the copyrights of. So every album from Internal Excel onward, I owned the copyright of. When I went to, on my publishing side, since Vigil, on the Vigil album, I own the copyright of the Vigil album because that was a very different ball game to the recording copyrights. Where was I before we were attacked and ravaged by gremlins? Um, uh, yeah, copyrights. So anyway, so when I left EMI, the publishing, the, when I left Marillion, my publishing deal was up anyway. So all my solo publishing, I have, it's, everything's licensed, so I own all, my, my solo publishing and we license it. Uh, at the moment, everything's run by Fishy Music Limited. Um, but the recording copyrights, the only album that I do not own the copyright of, the only solo album that I do not own the copyright of is Vigil in the Wilderness of Mirrors. And it, it saddens me, you know, because I just, you just feel like it's, it's, it's this one part of my body that's just kind of not there. And, uh, but so be it, you know, I don't get bent out of shape about it. It's, uh, as I said, you know, we're, we're, I'm doing a licensing deal of, of my lawyers, hopefully getting a licensing deal sorted out very soon. And when that happens, we'll release it and we'll be able to put it out for, you know, we, we, I think the license deal is for three years and then, then it goes back to, uh, Warner's again. Um, so at least I'll get, the Vigil album out and then I can do kind of what I want with the, 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 the Vigil album and that I can I can package it and put on a, something together that's kind of really special and we can get a, get a great remaster out of it. The Internal Excel remaster, I could, I could have done now, but I want the Internal Excel remaster to come out at the same time as the Vigil one. So I run the two of them at the same time. And as I said, there's the 13 star remaster and that will be the end of the hardback book thing. So that's kind of where it's at. So I'll do one more question. It's five past seven. It's okay. I hope you're all enjoying it. And it's like, I'll pick up the feed here. Yay! Jim Smith, Shazzy Kimono. And John Malai shop, yeah, hi you guys. Hi Fish, do you have a special corner with all the gifts you get from fans? 
Uh, where was that from? Don't know. Where are you? Um, oh, <laughs> Kaspar's Lickis, Lickis, right? And no, I don't. Some things, I gotta be honest, it's like, you're, I've got so much clutter in this house. It's like, and my wife and I kind of pick things, you know, there's, there's some stuff that's really special that we're given and it means something a lot to us. I mean, to us both and, but we've got limited space. The one thing I really don't like that I've, I find it really awkward when I'm given something is if I'm given a piece of artwork, right? It's a, I'm kind of very picky about what goes up in the walls. The problem is that this is a studio, right? And there's quite a few of the walls are rough stone and they're rough stone because when it was designed as a recording studio, the idea of having a rough stone wall is that when you're playing an instrument, the sound waves go off that rough stone and they go in all sorts of different directions, which means you get a kind of a big sound because the waves are going everywhere, right? Or the wave is going everywhere. And the room I'm actually sitting at the moment, which has got a beamed ceiling, which if I just tilt this back, it's got a big beam ceiling. I've got to watch this and not screw up. Um, where's he gone? I'm here. And it's got a big beam ceiling because the the sound waves go up into the, the beams and the, you know, it becomes a huge room. And it was the, the, this room was actually modelled on the, the the townhouse studio where I recorded the the, the Vigil in the Wilderness and Mirrors album, and the townhouse. Uh, live room, the drum room, was the one that was used by uh, Phil Collins for in the air tonight. And it was like, you just get a massive sound in this room. But one of the problems we found was the sound was actually too big. It was, you know, we actually had to shut the room down. And it's interesting that since 1998, since the studio was closed, and especially since 2001, when I moved in here, and this became kind of my home, right? It's been kind of changed about, but the sound in this place is still amazing. You know, there's, there's certain things that you've got to watch when you're, you're playing, when if you're doing a drum track, there's things will rattle and you've got to find out where they are and, and move them or whatever. But, you know, even though this is a, a, a domestic room, a, 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 a residential house, you know, it's um, as a studio, it still works. And we still have all the wiring going under the floors and we've got all the tie lines go back to the control room, which still exists at the moment. So when Callum Malcolm comes to record the album, such as Velschmerz, you know, he just brings his equipment down and he plugs it into my tie lines. And we have a working control room that is soundproof, that is like, uh, you don't get any leakage from anything that's getting played through in the main floor. And we have a playbook studio. You've just got to move the, you just got to move the dining room set. You've got to move the dining table, put the drum kit in. And, you know, but I mean, every album, every album since Internal Exile has been recorded here. And I'm so glad that I've still got this place because, for example, in Velschmerz, we've spent so much time working here, Steve Vances and I, with the writing and the guys coming up and then the recording. If if I was actually renting the, the studio time, if I was hiring a studio for all the time that I've spent on Velschmerz, the budget for this would have been it would have been 
it's incomprehensible, to be honest. I mean, I, you know, there's no way that any, if I was signing a major label, that I would have been allowed to have done this, you know? But I'm able to do it, and I'm, I'm really glad that I made that decision in 91. Because when I moved up here to outside Harrington, you know, I recognised that when I was in Marillion, there was, um, we used to spend a fortune on residential writing and we used to spend a fortune on studios and rehearsals and everything else. And in all honesty, what we should have done as a band was way back in about 1983, we should have bought a place as a band, but we didn't because it was decided that if anything went wrong, then, you know, how was it going to be split up, you know? And uh, it, it cost us a lot of money. So when I left, when I left Marillion, the first thing I wanted to get was basically a big house where I could have members of the band stay with me and I had a room that I could rehearse in, that I could write in. And, you know, and in 1991, basically two years after I moved here, we, I built this studio. Right? So this the room that I'm sitting in now was all a purpose-built studio that was created in 1991. And it cost me a fortune. I think this building was about 300,000 to build back then. And uh, because, I mean, it was, it was, it was pretty much a, a brand new build, although it looks old, you know, and it, it, it has been well lived in, but it was, it's basically a new build. And when everything went, when everything went tits up in uh, 2000, 2001, when I had my first divorce, um, uh, when that happened, I was in such a financial mess that I lost the house and I lost the residential block that I'd built for the bands to stay in after I built the recording studio. And I moved into the studio. And it was, this is the best place I've ever lived in in my life. I, I love this place. And Simone and my wife, loves this place and this is our home right it's not somewhere that i look on as an asset it's a home right and as i said every album since internal excel has been recorded in this very space so it's been really cool so maria gay i fish from tour in italy uh emilio tetamanti chocolate from switzerland thank you very much it's one thing. I've got there's a couple of new addictions come in, right? Fruit and nut, right? I think I mentioned this last week. Fruit and nut bars. We have to we only buy two big king size fruit and nut bars down in the supermarket on a Tuesday, and that does us for the whole week, right? It's gone by Wednesday night normally. And rich tea biscuits. My mum really loves rich tea biscuits. So we found ourselves watching TV at night and going like, it's no chocolate, is there? It's any chocolate. It's rich tea biscuits. And I've I've developed a bit of a thing for rich tea biscuits, and so is my wife. So one and I have, and we've had to go and replace my mum's rich tea biscuits on a regular basis. So I always buy the family pack with the two big tubes, and we we take away half of them through to the other room. So when she's doing the jigsaw and eating the rich tea biscuits. But it's yeah, so fruit and nut bars, rich tea biscuits, big one. It's quarter past seven. We had, a, we had a bit of a, uh, the, the bit of a technical hitch, right? So let's try and see where we can get around the next potential minefield of technical hitches. What I'm going to play for you, um, I'm not going to play it all because it's too long and I don't want you to hear it all, right? 
but uh, I'm going to play you the most recent mix of a track called uh, Walking on Eggshells. Um, this song, when, when we, we put it together, I think I even started explaining this last week. This song, when, when I started to put this together, was when Steve and I put it, it was, it was a bit magical, but it was, um, we weren't really sure where it was going to head and whether it would eventually make the album or whether it was going to have to be torn apart. And we continued with it. And when Callum got involved and heard that he loved it, uh, James Cassidy, uh, who's a great friend of mine, he loves, uh, especially the front end of this track. And when Callum came in, he said, like, oh, so could put strings in that. Oh, definitely strings. So we brought in members of the Scottish uh, Chamber Orchestra, with seven of them, and um, they were recorded up at uh, uh, Napier University, Napier College up in Edinburgh, uh, Napier University. And... Um, Callum recorded them up there. I didn't. He, I didn't hear. I wasn't at that session. I'd heard the kind of dummy arrangements that had been kind of the actual the written arrangements that had been done on on um, uh, samples using string samples, but I hadn't heard, heard the real strings. So what I'm going to play for you now is kind of roughly half of Walking on Eggshells, right? And this is on. I think it's on the second CD of the album. I'll have to check out, I can't remember. I get lost, but bear with me a minute. Just tell me ass to you. He gets up and didn't break wind. Ah, oh, there he goes. Try to extricate himself 
It's uh, it's pretty cool. I like it. The one I'm really for. I'm I've just just before I came on, it was a. Uh, <coughs> I've got a. I've got the um, the opening track, which is called um, uh, "Grace of God," and uh, I'm really excited. I'm going to be listening to that after after this. Well, after I've had my tea. So it's because uh, it's Friday night. It's fish on Friday and Friday night. And uh, you'll be going down your virtual pubs after this. Yeah. It's, uh... <laughs> I've just seen the Grendel mask. I've seen fish with Grendel mask on. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's really cool. And so uh, it looks like a lot of, yeah, yeah, the old magic. Yeah, yeah. Told me that that all good. Yeah, cool. Yeah. It's cool. 
It's um, I'm really pleased with this album, the Velschwitz album. I, I'm I'm just desperate for you guys to hear it, and I can't let you hear it. I can't let you hear the whole thing. The video for Garden of Remembrance um, that David Lamb's done is extraordinary. Everybody that has seen this video is just is has been in tears. Right? I mean, it is. It's the most emotional video that I've ever worked with. David Lamb has done an absolutely spectacular job with it. And that's intended to come out in June. And I might just have something there that might translate across on a radio and translate across into a, a, a bigger thing, which scares me in a way. It's, this, it's one of the problems I've got is that, you know, I like it being like this. I enjoy the kind of... I mean, James Cassidy, as I said, James Cassidy deals with um, all my digital releases. And, and he said, well, how are you putting this out? He says, well, I said, well, Simone and I will be dealing with it. And when it comes down to it, we'll hire people, you know, to help with the mail order. And basically this room will become a, a, a mailing outlet in, uh, in September. The pre-orders I'm hoping to get started in July because the end of the day I've still got to fund this this album. I mean it's um, kind of at the moment where the bank hits is a bit like pointless and it goes and you're just hoping you're going to hit the jackpot at the end of it. But you know, as James said, James Cassidy said to me, he said, "Well, he said, he said you might be underestimating this." He said because uh, I, I don't sell on Amazon. Um, for various reasons that I'm not going to go into, but I'm just, you know, it's, and I, I don't send, sell to independent record stores because they just sell on the internet and so do I. So why should I create my own competition? So we deal with it from here and, you know, up till now, we're faced the consequences, you know, we dealt with it and Simona's really got the office, you know, humming and, and buzzing now. And with a new mail order thing, which, I have to give an update. It's ongoing. We've got a whole thing going wrong. Mail now. The machines are delivered on Monday, and we're just making sure that everything's absolutely perfect before we put the t-shirts on sale. I've got about, I think, about two thousand t-shirts across three designs uh, that are sitting out there in the garage. I didn't want to put them on sale just now because the mail order isn't set up right, and were postal prices, I want to make sure everything is just ticking perfectly. I don't want mistakes. I don't want, uh, you know, we can't send out t-shirts on tracked and signed for because it's, it would just become ridiculous. Well, the prices of the postage would become silly. So with a new mail order system, it'll go back to, we'll have standard postage and have options for people to deal with postage. And we will have these electronic customs data stickers that we need to get to places like Brazil and America by the end of the year. So all that's on the go. So, but the problem is that once with the t-shirts, because of the lockdown, nobody's manufacturing. And uh, Razzmatazz who manufacture and print our t-shirts, they're not working at the moment. So once these shirts have gone, that's it. We don't have anything else to sell and Velchmerts won't be out till September. So there's a lot of, I've got a lot of balancing to do and a lot of kind of, there's a lot of threading my way through, you know, this crisis. We, we're okay at the moment. I mean, we don't, 
get money off the government. We don't ask the government, the, the government for money. We've got a garden, we grow our food, the salads are all coming through and everything. But at the same time, you know, the Welshman's army were very aware that, you know, it's all gone back to September and we've got to bridge that gap because at some point we're going to have to start buying promotion and buying adverts and things and stuff. But that's a by the by. But that's my problem and I can deal with it. I've dealt with worse before, you know. And um, it's, but the tracks are strong and, uh, you know, I'm confident. But I mean, to go back to what I was originally saying, it kind of scares me because, you know, it's such a good album that if it goes like, well, Feast of Consequences was wonderful and we dealt with that and we can handle it going a bit bigger. But James is saying, well, you know, what happens if it goes, what happens if Garden of Remembrance becomes a hit single? And then, but I mean, to be honest, I'm just going to have to deal with that when I've got to deal with it. I like it as it is. You know, I like to be, be able to do this. If I was in, uh, you know, a big band, then, you know, I probably wouldn't be able to do this kind of stuff. And that's why I like kind of where I'm at. But at the same time, you know, I've got 15,000 deluxe albums that are getting uh, printed up that will all be arriving here, which petrifies us. And we have to try and get rid of them, you know, because we've got to pay for everything that's gone before. But, you know, by, by the by. Anyway, I'll take a question and move away from that stuff. That's something else. Oh, when it, Tony Sullivan, here's a question for you. As a self-employed creative, who or what is the closest thing you have to a boss? Wife not allowed. Um, I don't have a boss. Uh, um, I don't have management. Um, I manage, I self-manage and I deal with it myself. I have advisors like James Cassidy who advises me on all things digital and all things kind of internet related to promotion. I've got a great press officer in William Luff who, um, who guides me and corrects me when I start writing bios that are far too long. He can edit and I appreciate and bow down his edits. I've got guys, I've got a lot of different people, you know, in the same way as I was explaining before about in the days of Marillion when Marillion became successful, I had people who I relied on, that I depended on, and I have them as, as bounce boards, and I still have them. I've, Yatta is still a best friend. Steve Ansis is my best mate, you know, and, you know, I will bounce ideas off those people, but, you know, ultimately, the decision is mine. And, you know, I can fall or fly on those decisions. Um, a lot less impetuous than I used to be. Um, I'm wiser than I was. Uh, there was a period in, in the 90s, in the, the mid 90s, when I was striving for the kind of success that I had before. But then you kind of realize that I don't really need that kind of success because my lifestyle isn't in a place where it has to be funded to the nth degree, you know? So I've got, my life is kind of quite well balanced at the moment. And, you know, as I said, I can run it and I've got, I've got good friends, good confidants in the music business and out the music business because, you know, there's some decisions I need to run by people that are not involved in the music business, that are music business related, if you understand what I mean. 
And you know, when I made the when I made the decision about retirement, you know, I talked to a lot of people, a lot of you know, close friends and things. So um, yeah. So you know, I'm own boss. I mean, I, I don't have management because it's like, you know, all the managers that I would have liked to have had, right? I've got their own bands, and um, you know, I think good managers you grow up with. You know, they, they're they're in there at an early stage, and they grow with you and understand you. Whereas you know, there's nobody out there that I can. Really, would like to have as as a manager, you know. This, um, you know, I just end up. I mean, if if I had a manager, there's a lot of gigs that I do that I wouldn't be able to do because of the percentage and commission I would have to give that manager would make those gigs unfeasible, you know. And in the same way as the way that I'm going about this Velschmerz album, then. I think, you know, management would be telling me to, you know, you can't do this, you can't do this. Because I, I have a very maverick approach and I have a very unusual, independent approach. And I have, um, sometimes some people might say an eccentric approach to doing what I do. But I like doing what I do and, you know, it's rel- relatively successful and, like I said, it keeps my wife and I in a house, and you know we have we have a good lifestyle, and you know I'm okay with that, and that's cool, you know. Um, I've just now I've never really wanted to be really rich, and I've, every time I actually find money brings more problems than not having money. It's uh, it attracts the wrong people to you, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, and you know. Like I said, I've got a good balance at the moment. I'll move on. No question. You have about 10 minutes left because the missus. Darling! What's for tea? Celery schnitzel. Celery schnitzel. With bacon, like and salad. Swiss sweet potatoes. Sweet potatoes, big liking here. And um, so it's vegetarian yeah. tonight. Yeah. Good. Thank you. I won't be long. Jogmuts. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, Van Hasty, Rickley Jones, and Johnny Mitchell als Künstler für dich entdeckt. Um, when did I find Rickley Jones and Johnny Mitchell's? You know, Rickley Jones. I first heard on the album when Chucky's in Love, and I loved it because Steve Gadd was drumming. That fill that he does on Chucky's in Love. It's just, it's still one of the greatest drum fills ever. Beautiful. Just the playing on that album. Ricky Lee Jones, the Pirates album. If you ever get a chance to hear it, um, in fact, listen to it. Pirates album, uh, We Belong Together, which is the opening track of the album, is one of my favourite all-time tracks. And one of my a track that can reduce me to tears, right? Every time I hear it, I well up, right? It's Skeletons. It's the one of the most brilliant lyrics and one of the most poignant melodies and the story behind it. If you read the lyrics and get the story about it, it's just so, it's just beautiful. And I, I, I love Ricky Lee Jones stuff. I've, 
I kind of lost track of her and then kind of refound her a couple of years ago. I went on to, I bought a bunch of CDs and I was surprised that I'd missed some of that stuff. And I actually met her one time, very, very briefly. I was doing an interview for some BBC station down in London, not one of the big BBC stations. And um, I was standing outside having a cigarette at the time and uh, Ricky Lee Jones came out and she was about to get in a cab and I had a brief conversation with her and I was absolutely awestruck. I was, the mate was like, oh, Ricky Lee Jones. I mean, she's an amazing singer. And that, that the jazziness and everything and, and what, she's obviously influenced by, by Joni Mitchell and Joni Mitchell, I obviously knew back in the 70s and I was aware of the, the Hegira album I was aware of Joni Mitchell in the seventies when I was kind of going through when I was a when I was a punter, right? And um, but in the eighties, I think especially round about when we were doing Misplaced Shell, dude, I was I started to listen to a lot of Joni Mitchell and really got into her lyrics. In fact, it was before then because I, I remember getting a lot of cassettes at the time. In fact, yeah, it must have been about nineteen eighty three. And then I started to listen to a lot of her lyrics. And as a lyricist, she's just astounding, absolutely astounding. And some of the jazzier stuff, which was the big influence on Ricky Lee Jones, you know, I kind of, some of that went by me, but Hegira as an album is, is still one of my all time favorite albums. Um, absolutely adore her. I was, um, she's a woman I would love to meet, but I've heard stories and the, that scare me, you know. Um, I, I heard a story about uh, that Dave Coverdale uh, met her at a party and uh, Johnny's was known as, as being a, a bit of a man-eater. And the story I heard from very good sources was that they met at a party and Johnny obviously saw Dave Coverdale, who at that time was a, a very good-looking young man. I think it was in Purple Days. And when he was introduced, he turned around and he said, oh, I really love your music, really love your lyrics. And she just blanked him and walked away. <laughs> and it's just, yeah, she something like that. But, and it was really sad to, to, to hear about her being ill. I mean, there was, I was, there was a rumor went about that she'd passed away and I was, when that rumor came through, I was, I was broken. I was like, you know, she's just one of the, all-time greats, one of, an absolute legend. And the way that she focuses on lyrics and the way she moves lyrics in her music, the way the lyrics sit, they're phrasing, is just beautiful. Again, if you get a chance, the orchestral uh, albums that she did a few years ago, it was a, oh, it must have been about nine years ago, 10 years ago. I can't remember the name off the top of my head but there was a couple of sets, like double album sets, where she took all her instruments and she sung, she re-recorded all her old material, but she did it in an orchestra. Ah, oh, some of them, some of the tracks in that are just astounding. Uh, I'm gonna, I've got five minutes, and I've got a battery running low on, wait a minute. Oh, fuck. This is a, ow, don't. Plugging my laptop. Uh, 
Is it plugged in? Yep. Yeah, I'm back. Andrea, stop texting me in the middle of these things. Um, Steve Bowman, can we come round for tea? No. So one, the one thing, the lockdown, even when I had the old house next door, it was, uh, the place was a bus station. I mean, we used to, it was people coming in and out, and especially when we had the residential block, because we had so many people would kind of come up and stay with us and, you know, being a kind of gregarious person. Was, yeah, come up and stay. And then you'd end up having lost weekends and, you know, there was always people around. And one of the things about the lockdown, which I've, I've kind of come to enjoy, is the fact that, like, it's just Simona, our son Liam, my stepson, and my mum and I here, and Rab was up. Uh, Rab, who helps me with the garden, has been coming up the last couple of days and, and working in isolation away from us just because the garden work's just become so hectic. And he's been able to work away and do some digging and bits and pieces in, in the garden, you know. And we, we talk we talk from either side of the garden each other and, uh, and maintain our social distancing, etc. I don't wear the Grendel mask at that point, but... But it's... Um, it's been nice to have the peace and quiet. And as I've, I've said, I say it again, I mean, we are just so lucky that we live in the country. I mean, I'm 50 minutes drive off the hills if I want to go up there. I'm 50 minutes off brilliant East Lothian beaches. I mean, I love this county. It's one of the reasons why when Simone and I got together, we didn't know whether we were going to live in Germany or here, but it was Simone loves this place. And... I think with Simona falling in love with this place, not just this house and this area, but I mean, you know, the entire locale. It was, uh, I kind of fell back in love with it again, not that I'd fall, ever fallen out of love with it, but I'm, I love East Lothian, it's fantastic. And, um, but the, the, the kind of peace and quiet at the moment, you know, just working in the garden and, and changing the, the, the way that the rhythm of our life has completely changed as it has for you guys. I mean, I was saying that it's, it's like, you know, before, you know, I, I, I bounce through projects. I mean, you can, it's like the way I talk, I bounce through things and I'm always grabbing things and, you know, I'm, I'm working on A, but I'm thinking about B and C at the same time. Whereas now with the current situation, I'm kind of dealing with A and then I'm kind of enjoying dealing with A and then I know I've got B to move on to. You know, and this I'm, this is where I've been working in the garden and I've been reveling in kind of this diff whole different rhythm of life. And it's just, I'm a lot, there's a lot less stress, you know. Um, and that's to go back to right at the start of this, this broadcast. You know, that's why I try and stay away from the TV because I can't change that. You know, when the lockdown is finished, I can't change that. It will, you know, Fauci in America said the virus runs the timeline and that's kind of where I'm at. It's, I can't fret and get stressed out about whether the November, December tour is going to happen. You know, I can't deal with that. You know, that what will be, will be, right? And, you know, I've just got to be in the place and in the time and... 
you know, appreciate on a day-to-day -day basis. And when you see so many families going through like so much grief and, you know, I'm so glad, I mean, seeing all the messages, the stuff happening in the care homes, I'm just so glad that, you know, my mother is, is, is living with us, you know, through there. I mean, I think, I think I would have found that very, very difficult to deal with. And I think, you know, it's the one thing that kind of, it's the one, that's the, the big fear, I think. And it's, I think it's probably a big fear for a lot of people out there. I miss my daughter. My daughter's across there. Simona misses her daughters as I do. You know, one's down in uh, uh, Puerto uh, Ventura, Ventura, and that one's in Colm. And, you know, we miss them, we ain't seen them, but you know, we have WhatsApp and stuff, etc. It's, um, uh, yeah, we're alive, you know, we're in a good place. Um, the good thing is we got a, a new mattress today. Yeah, <laughs> got new, it was delivered in this little box and we opened it up and I'm going like, it's a mattress. Then we cut it, it was like the vacuum seal, it was like one of them, and it just grew and grew and grew and it was, you know, king size mattress. And I'm glad we've got it because Simona's done her neck in. We can't go and see our back guy, um, Bruce Band. If you're watching, hello. Bruce is a guy who's an absolute genius and a miracle worker, really sorting my back out. And he needs to sort Simona's back out. And we've been on this, we've had this double bed that we've had since the flat in Durlach. And we, we got it, we bought it ages ago and it's like, it's been doing my nothing. And not only have I got back problems at the moment and someone has got terrible back issues that nobody, but she can't see anybody because of the, the COVID-19 thing. But on top of that, I've got this torn tendon, I've got a, a, a torn tendon in the shoulder, which is not really helping me at the moment, which means my sleep patterns are like all screwed up. So we've got a new mattress tonight. So, so later it's going to be the first night on the new mattress and it's going to be brilliant, you know? Okay. It's quarter two. Uh, um, the last one, last one. Burn Wild, question for Friday. If you didn't have the nickname Fish, would you have sung as Derek? Or if not, what stage name would you have picked for yourself? Um, Fish was the obvious name as the stage name. I mean, you know, when I went down to join Marillion, it was great. When I left Marillion, it was, it was different. I did think about, I did think about a band name, but I didn't really have any idea of a band name. And I thought it was too much, you know, to, to, to go solo and then try and launch with another name. And then I went, nah. So I had to go as, as, as Fish. Um, so it's worked, but I mean, one of the problems was with the internet, when it went for domain names, it was like, you know, we actually, we, we, we nearly got sued by a, um, or we, we were threatened to be sued by an aquarium in, uh, by an, uh, an, an aquarium shop in, somewhere in Texas, right? Who had fish.com and, uh, we, I just thought, I had no idea. You know, when we started, like, yeah, yeah, we'll just go fish.com, my name's fish, fish.com, right? We, we, we own this name. And uh, so that's been kind of weird in the same way as like, as you'll see on, on the, on, when you look at the links on this stuff, it's like, 
when you, you when you go in the timeline and then obviously people are buying adverts whatever and you get some guy in china right or or they're in thailand or something and they, they start you suddenly you start finding uh you know fishing adverts coming up on, the, on my pages on the timeline because they think i've got something to do with the fishing industry and it's uh and i do get some ridiculous messages sometimes like uh people trying to send me fishing gear you want to buy some lures mate <laughs> What's some what's some tackle? What's a fishing tackle, mate? Right? Yeah, a fishing tackle. Right? Cast a line in there, cast a line, right? So um so yeah, so you know, fish is where it's at. I mean I, again I don't know what to do with the autobiography. I mean there's been so many when are you gonna write your autobiography? So many questions on that, really. It's like it will be how will happen when it happens, right? But I mean, I, I don't know what to do. I mean, I, I've got to get fishing there, otherwise people won't know what it's about. I can't go out, I can't go out as Derek Dick, but I'm going to have to get Derek Dick and fishing there with some clever title. But I've got no idea what to do yet. <laughs> right, so anyway, that's it. I'm going to call an end to this. It's uh, 9.45 and I've got my breaded celery and vegetarian stuff. And it's uh, my last, um, my last, Erdinger, alcohol free. We've got no more till Tuesday. So, with no further ado, to everybody out there, this is your little flash of a Grendel again. Take care, stay alive, look after yourself, and remember, keep your social distancing. And if you have a problem, get a mask like this. I'm guaranteed people will stay away from you. <laughs> Cheers. Until next Friday, 6 o'clock, this is The Fish on Friday, saying goodnight. Enjoy your pub. <laughs>